Well, we conclude our mini Advent series, so to speak. And if you're not in the Gospel of Mark on your device or in your Bible, you have a chance to do that. You can simply Google Mark or you can go to a Bible app and find the Gospel according to Mark if you want to follow along with some of this. It's a unique way to celebrate Advent, but, you know, what else did you expect, especially in a year like this? As we've mentioned, for the last 1,500 or so years, the church has celebrated the season of Advent, arrival, coming of Jesus, and longed for his return. Most Advent messages uh, around this season will come out of uh, two different books of the Bible, not Mark, Matthew and Luke, because those describe, at least in part, the birth of Jesus. Mark tends to announce Jesus slightly differently, not into a manger, but into his ministry, not into the city of Bethlehem, but into Capernaum, the home of Peter and Andrew, not dependent on the life of a mother, but giving life to a mother or a mother-in-law and many others. It's not into relative obscurity that Mark announces him, but into increasing popularity. That's the arrival of Jesus according to Mark. So Merry Christmas, church, of one final message. To be clear, Mark's purpose in writing this letter or this treatise is not to record a documentary, a, t- a historically accurate chronology of events. He, he's, he's coming to proclaim something thematically. That's what he's working on, as most of the biblical authors are, are more, much more interested in themes, even as they're recording narrative. Not that these things did not happen historically, but he's not attempting to give you a timeline of events. That's very important to know. That means that these first episodes or scenes that he is revealing at the beginning of this letter are meant to be emblematic, are meant to declare something, to announce something very important. We should ask that question. Why is he choosing these scenes to show us right from the beginning? What, what does he mean for them to say? Just as our incumbent president is already making declaration for the first hundred days in office, meant to be emblematic of the coming four years, he's intentional about those things he's declaring. Similarly, Mark would, would put these scenes forward to say a much bigger message, to declare something, to announce something about this person, Jesus. It's interesting that Each of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all describe Jesus or announce him slightly differently. Matthew and Luke highlight, showcase his teaching authority. With with Matthew recording the longest sermon that we have in all of Scripture, right toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That means something. That's what they are declaring. The gospel of John announces Uh, this sign, a miracle, Jesus changing water to wine, a a sign meant to to point to something much bigger. That's what all of the signs that that John records are meant to do, to point to something much greater and bigger. Well, Mark essentially is doing both in a unique way. He does highlight the authority to teach in chapter 1, verse 22, as he was in the temple or in in the synagogue. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Scribes would have been the most learned ones of the day. Jesus taught with even a greater authority. So Mark highlights that, but then quickly moves on to these other scenes, not to a broader discourse or teaching like Matthew does, or even Luke does. But he shows these four episodes, we call them scenes. One of a demonized man, a woman in bed with a fever, a leper, and a paralytic at the beginning of chapter 2. 
And collectively, they serve as a sign to a much deeper spiritual truth that Mark is trying to proclaim. That's how we are to receive this message, as we are to notice them together proclaiming something. How do we notice that? Well, this is one long passage bookended by two events, bookended by the calling of disciples. If you look at chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus calls his first followers to follow him. Peter and Andrew, James and John, these fishermen by the Sea of Galilee. And then in two, in chapter 2, verse 13, he calls Levi the tax collector. These are like bookends. See, these are markers when you read carefully a text. We have to remember when this was first written, written in the Greek language, there were no chapters or verse markings or heading titles. None of that was in the original text of the author. They would use other things textually to highlight, to reveal, and a reader was meant to hear or to notice these things. So these bookends of these calling of of followers are, are meant to kind of jump off the page. Because if Mark is writing thematically, then it it would have made much more sense to put the calling of Levi right after the calling of these other four men. Because that thematically, Jesus is drawing disciples to him. We're meant to notice the similarities, though, between them, each by the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, each with an invitation to follow Jesus. Each case, maybe the most unlikely of men to be called as, as disciples of a rabbi, and each, in each case, they leave everything and follow Jesus. So they're, they're meant to, to, to mirror each other and to make us notice and then look within those bookends to what, what comes in between. We could just simply take chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 and insert them right at the end of chapter 1, verse 20. I know this is difficult on an app. I wish you had a scroll before you, but you don't. And I wish you had maybe a Bible. Some of you do, or you could see the two textual bookends. Thematically, if we plugged in verses 13 and 14 of 2 after 120, it would read like this. After the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Jesus went out again beside the sea. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. That would have flowed thematically. Instead, Mark separates those. And since Mark is writing thematically, we should notice that absolutely. And look in between the two bookends and wonder if there's actually some other mirrored uh, scenes happening. And I think you will absolutely see some mirrored scenes in these other four scenes. The first scene and the fourth scene mirror each other. And the second and the third. They're all healing accounts to a degree. Jesus is bringing healing in these various four accounts. The first and the fourth are spiritual healing, our inner healing. He, he confronts a man demonized. Uh, we might say he, he would have appeared maybe mentally ill, and Jesus delivers him, brings him wholeness, brings him freedom. And then in the fourth scene, we see a, we see a paralytic We see it all come together. We see this paralytic who Jesus will heal physically also, but he first brings him spiritual healing. He offers the forgiveness of sins. Those mirror each other. And then in in the second and third episodes, those two mirror. They're both physical healings. Peter's mother-in-law who's in bed with a fever, and we we said how, how, how important that message preaches today. She might have been on her deathbed, and Jesus reached her, touched her, and lifted her up and brought her wholeness and healing physically. 
And then he reached and touched a leper, maybe the most shunned and outcast of, of all of society. He touched his life. And I think more than the physical healings, though Jesus had an ability and a willingness to do that, was his reach and touch into the margins of society, the most needy, the most hurting, the most outcast. That's who Jesus reached and came for to heal, the least, the last, and the lost. So you'll see, I wish you could see this, and maybe if I had a whiteboard, that would help too. There's a beautiful structure and flow to this whole, whole passage from these bookends, and then these, it's almost like a stepping up to a center and then a stepping down with mirrors along the sides. At the very center, we should notice his prayer. At the very center of these healing episodes is Jesus withdrawing to the wilderness, the Eremon, a desolate place to commune with his father. See, if Jesus was going to fulfill all that he had been sent to fulfill, he would need full dependence on God, his father, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I preached on that a couple weeks ago. Now, if all of that was just too textual, I know some of you are eating it up. You love that context and that depth and others are waiting for some application. We'll get there. We teach and then we turn and we apply. But I do want to see this last episode, which I think is the key to unlocking all four of these healing episodes of Jesus. And, and furthermore, may be the key to understanding his entire mission of why he came and what he came to do. This begins at the, at the start of chapter two of Mark. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed upon which the paralytic was laying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. It's such a powerful passage recorded also by Matthew and Luke. Jesus was at home though. That was a really rare thing to say. It seems like Jesus was the wandering vagabond rabbi. He had no, no home, but it says he was at home. And if this wasn't his home or the home of a family member, maybe it was just Peter's home. He had so welcomed him into his life that that became like home to him, when, at least when they were in Capernaum. That's what many scholars think is probably the most likely. But either way, this was a, a very personal place, a private place. And at this time, Jesus welcomes these crowds, and not just any crowds, of needy, Sick people, desperate people, almost breaking down the door. In this case, breaking through the roof. Now, that's strange. I mean, thinking about our, our architecture, our structures, it wouldn't have been the same in Middle Eastern, uh, you know, Middle Eastern uh, culture and, and society. 
They would have had probably single rooms, single story, flat roof, with, often with a staircase up the side, and they would use the top of that roof, com, compact it on top of the, the beams and maybe the branches with a packed mud or clay or maybe some tile to create like a deck or a patio. They would use it to cool off in the night. The heat of the day would just bake those things. So at night, they'd often go up there to eat or to retreat or to fellowship. They'd, they'd hold meetings up there because that was the biggest space they had in this, in this small kind of structure. Likely, that's the picture that you have to have in mind. So these men went up this outside staircase onto the top, and it wouldn't have been easy. But with work, they dug through the roof down to Jesus, and they lowered their friend down to him. Now, you or me welcoming, I mean, as if that were possible, welcoming these crowds coming to hear us teach or to have us minister to them, I, I would be so perturbed if someone was broke through my roof <laughs> and lowered down this man. Jesus doesn't even mention it. In fact, he just responds with compassion. And once again, we see him holding the, the er- earthly things so loosely. It just, it's just striking to me how, how tightly we sometimes hold on our own securities or comforts or possessions in Jesus is so open uh, with, and sees right to the heart of people much more than any earthly thing. What, what is so amazing about this is uh, the whole interaction reveals Jesus' mission in, in his order of ministering to this paralytic. And it's absolutely what he wants the whole crowds to see. They're now captive. This is his most captive audience. And through his words and through his actions, he declares, and Mark also wants to declare his mission and his ministry. Jesus came primarily to heal spiritually, to bring inner healing and wholeness and redemption. That's his mission and his purpose. Not that he wasn't concerned with physical wellness, the holistic healing of all peoples, but he he models his intention by declaring to this man, your sins are forgiven. A man who is clearly coming for physical healing. He was desperate, he had nowhere else to turn. And Jesus looks at him with compassion and says, your sins are forgiven. He goes right to the heart, the inward reality. Now, it's not that this man had greater sins than others. That's not the point. It's Jesus revealing what was the priority. What good is it to have physical wellness if you have no inner peace, if you're full of anxiety, guilt, shame, fear, anger, what, what is the point of being physically well? Jesus has come to prioritize his holistic healing. This is what salvation is, that word salvation that we see again and again. It is the word sozo in Greek, and it means a holistic wellness, a restoration. When, when referring to individuals, it means holistic healing of body, soul, and mind. When referring to humanity, it means renewal, redemption, restoration, and righteousness. That's the salvation of Jesus. Jesus came to sozo. That's what it meant to bring heaven onto earth, and that's what he's revealing in this scene. Jesus shows us, this is so vital, that the primary problem is not that a law has been broken and a penalty needs to be paid, but that there is sin, and it's like a sickness that needs to be healed And Jesus comes like the physician or the surgeon and is able and willing to heal the whole person. He looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. In other words, I give you inner healing, peace, spiritual freedom, and grace. All of these are meant to be 
collectively seen as signs of what Jesus is bringing. But this one is to culminate that and to bring them together. Because then he turns and he does physically heal. Because he knows that there's this inward grumbling amongst the scribes. They're calling it blasphemy. No one could forgive sins except for God alone. They knew absolutely what he was claiming in that statement. And they challenged him. They did not believe him. But they didn't have much time, did they? Because he turns to them and says, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And there's irony, isn't, isn't there? I love Jesus. Because obviously, I mean, the answer would be, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Who can prove that anyway? Whether it was a reality, who could say rise up and walk to a, a, a paralyzed man on display? Now, I mean, this is, this is the captive audience that Jesus has before him. And, he, and so he calls out, rise up and walk. That you might know that I have authority to forgive sins. That you no longer can challenge that, rise up and walk. You know, he doubles down. He, he presses in with his words. And any, any Jewish scholar, probably any Jew at all, would have known when he invoked the title Son of Man, what he was declaring. He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to do these things, to forgive sins. It's a title from the prophetic book of Daniel. And I think it's worth reading this, these couple verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel records in a vision that he saw, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. There's the title that Jesus will grab from Daniel and apply to himself. There came like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. This would be the eternal God, Yahweh. And he was, pre- and he was presented before him. And to him, this son of man, or one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Nearly five centuries before Jesus walked the earth, this was declared in a vision by Daniel, and Jesus is reaching back to this prophetic word about this coming Messiah, this coming deliverer, and he's applying it to himself. In fact, nearly 80 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus uses this title for himself, by far the single most common declaration or title he invokes. And absolutely, the scribes, the Pharisees, they knew what, absolutely what he was doing, what he was claiming, who he was claiming to be. And most often they reject him. They challenge him. They call it blasphemy. But in this case, when they're probably about to do that, Jesus says to this paralyzed man, rise up and walk so that you know I've got that authority. And they, they are astonished, at least rightly respond, and they glorify God who must have given this man who they don't yet fully believe is, like, is the son of man, is the fulfillment, but they glorify God who gives him the power to even heal. And they're questioning amongst themselves who this is. By the way, don't you find it striking that these friends bring this man to Jesus? In every account, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, it doesn't say when he saw the man's faith. In fact, I I think it's more likely, I think it's more likely that Jesus was reflecting on the faith of these friends, not this man, that these friends said to this man, their their, their friend, we're going to take you to Jesus. I think that is more likely than, G- than this man begging his friends to take him. 
I think that's the way the text reads. And so when Jesus sees their collective faith, not that the man didn't have faith, but he says, your, your sins are forgiven and you will be well. Faith has, has a role to play, but so often we see in scriptures and the accounts of Jesus that it's much more about his love, his grace, his mercy, his willingness than it is about the faith of the individual coming. In fact, there's many times where, where, where someone comes on behalf of another who has no faith or no, has not even asked for Jesus' help and someone goes and asks and Jesus heals. May we never underestimate how vital it might be to bring others to Jesus, even in just our prayers, knowing that he has grace, mercy, compassion, and a willingness to heal. If this is the key to unlocking this broader section and maybe the whole mission of Jesus in story form, the holistic healing inner and outer that Jesus brings, then it is further clarified in his words at the very end of this broader passage. Chapter 2, verse 17, when challenged further by the scribes, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Even Jesus takes on this image of being the physician, the healer of a sickness, not a judge who has come to enact judgment, or even one who has come to pay a penalty, but a physician who has come to heal a sickness. Now, there's double meaning here too. Big surprise, right? But I love that the the biblical authors are bold enough to leave this in. They could have smoothed it over for some clarity. Did Jesus not come to call everybody? Yes. Did Jesus not have the harshest words for the religious leaders, the ones that would have been considered righteous? Yes, he did. So this doesn't mean that he was saying they're, they're fine, they're all good. These, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're, they're, I've, come, I've come for the sinners. He's actually making a double point. It's not, though, it's not those that think they're well that go see a doctor. I've come for those who know they're desperately sick and have nowhere else to turn. And that's what we see in all four scenes. From, from the demonized man to the, to the woman in bed with a fever, Peter, being desperate for, on behalf of his mother-in-law, to the leper who came begging to Jesus, and to these friends who bring this man who had no other, no other hope for any kind of healing. We see those that deeply know they need the touch and healing of Jesus, and that's why he came. And that's what the gospel is, the wholeness, the salvation, the fullness, the redemption of what Jesus attempted And in that statement, he meant that he came to call the least and the last, the least likely to follow him, a tax collector. A tax collector would have been shunned and outcast in society, considered a traitor to the Jews because he was working for the Roman government. And in order to make money, had to to enact even higher taxes that he could glean some. Often, those that served the, the Roman empire or, or regional tri- tribune as a tax collector were, were Jewish people. They were rejected by their family, renounced, shunned. It may have been more amazing. They may have been more astonished that Jesus would call a tax collector to follow him and eat with him in his home than to reach out and touch a leper. It would have been so striking. And Jesus again shows his priorities, his upside down kingdom priorities. Let's wrap up this section and this sermon. I see your faces and your discomfort. 
I hope it's because of the cold and not the words. The first and last thing that Mark wants to show us in Jesus and to announce him on the scene is that he has come to bring holistic healing, beginning inwardly and then proven outwardly. Deliverance, freedom, forgiveness, and wholeness. That's what all of his physical healings are meant to signify, to point to. And that's what's unlocked by this section of Scripture. So how do we respond? Similarly, as I called us last week, we, we can't help but see in Jesus someone who is willing to receive all of us. So come to him with every sickness, illness, pain, grief, loss, with inwardly shame, guilt, fear, anxiety. We, Jesus will receive all of us, our total being, and he sees us, he loves us, and he desires to make us well. Come to him, draw near to him, and don't under underestimate what it might mean to bring others to him, even through our prayers, our intercession. But truly, to apply this, to live like Jesus, to become followers of his way, we are meant to reach into the places he reached, to see the people he sees, those with the least access to Jesus, those that in our society might be shunned or rejected, the least, the last, and the lost, the outcast, oppressed, and overlooked. What kinds of peoples, maybe even have religious peoples declared, are the most unclean, the most unworthy? Do we see them? Can we reach them? Can we extend the love and the grace of Jesus that would say, we know one who wants to make you holy well, who wants to forgive sin, relieve shame and pain, and to give you back identity and dignity? Do we live like that in that way? May we have opportunity even this week as we approach Christmas as people that are abundantly blessed and privileged, may we look to serve and to give to others the last, the least, and the lost, and to represent Jesus as we do.